Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Prime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Drawback. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week, uh, we're actually not exactly talking about our dear Agatha. We are talking about something that is uh, very much related to her. We are lucky enough to have on this week the great Sophie Hanna, who um, most of our listeners will know as the author of the continuation Poirot novels. And there are three to date, the last one just having been published in the States uh, a few months ago. So we are going to talk to her about all things Agatha, of course, as well as uh, her you know, award-winning and illustrious career, writing everything from poetry to children's fiction to a large number of psychological thrillers, in addition, of course, to our beloved Poirot. So we could not be more thrilled to have Sophie on. She's been a great friend to us, and while we have long loved our Twitter conversations with her and other exchanges. This was a wide ranging and I hope for you guys insightful conversation into the writing process and into mystery novels and also as it turns out how to hold a grudge. Sophie's other new book. I just wanted to note that Sophie really has been a longtime friend of the podcast. We met her all the way back when we traveled to Cambridge Oh, so many moons ago. She was so welcoming then. And we are just so excited that we finally can have her on the podcast. We've been meaning to do this for a while. And those Poirot novels, which some of you will be familiar with, are The Monogram Murders, Closed Casket, and then most recently, The Mystery of Three Quarters. And we won't be covering them on the podcast, since of course, they are not Christie novels per se. But as Catherine noted, I would imagine many of you have read them or at least are aware of them. So let's get right to the conversation. And as usual, this was a transatlantic phone call. I think we've sorted our telephonic sound issues to uh, at least a reasonable degree at this point so that you will be able to hear the conversation that we had, fingers crossed. And let's go to it. Let's go to it. I want to say thank you so much. We're so excited that we were able to get you on the phone. Yeah, you're writing about grudges, Sophie. Next year in America, it's coming out. It's a self-help book called How to Hold a Grudge. And it is genuinely and sincerely saying that if we allow ourselves to hold grudges in the right way and the right kinds of grudges, then it actually makes us happier and makes the world a better place and enables us to be more forgiving. Lots of people think of holding grudges as the opposite to forgiving someone. I'm arguing that if you hold the kinds of grudges I think we should all be holding, it actually makes it easier to forgive much more quickly and, and readily. In most crime novels, grudges are acted on in a negative way. So in crime novels, people form grudges and then use them as an inspiration to commit murder. That's definitely not what I'm advocating in my book. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad that we have that out of the way, that, that you have yeah, not actually I mean, secretly written a guide to murder. <laughs> definitely not. I'm really just talking about turning each grudge-sparking incident into a story that you can then look at and think, right, what can I learn from this? 
And it's also just giving yourself permission to say, you know what, someone treated me badly and that matters. Often when we hold grudges in the wrong way, in a toxic, bitter way that's going to make us feel worse and possibly make us do something aggressive to the other person, the reason we do that is because we feel something bad has been done to us and we haven't done anything to address that. So we kind of seethe and we're bitter and we're upset and we cry and we rant. If you give yourself permission to create and even write down your grudge story and kind of officially induct it into your grudge collection, well, then you are not just anymore someone to whom something has been done. You are someone who something unfortunate has happened to, but you have responded by creating your grudge and that is your symbolic commemorative justice object. So you're no longer just someone who's acted upon. You are you become an actor in the story yourself. And you that's really empowering. Right, of course. Although I have to say, Sophie, it does sound like this could be a guide to um, end crime fiction. And I don't know that any of us want that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> It's certainly true that crime fiction relies on regular murders being committed. That's the great hypocrisy in my theory, isn't it? Because I want everyone to live in this enlightened, grudge-holding way. But if they all listen to me, uh, then there'd, there'd be no more murders. But maybe that would be good. As long as there can be fictional murders, it would be great if, like, real murder died out altogether, but fictional murder became even more popular and strong than it already is. I'm curious if that's how you came to write this book, because a lot of the scenarios sound to me like the opening chapter of a uh, book of crime fiction, then just completely gone in another direct, you know, in the other direction from where it could have gone. I think there's a link, but it's not the causal link that most people might imagine. So I think the fact that I am so interested in grudges and that I have always had lots of grudges is definitely linked to the fact that crime fiction is the genre I've always wanted to write and read. Mm, uh -huh, uh, mm -hmm. I think what it, what it shows is that I'm really, really interested in human behavior and in particular in kind of dysfunctional human behavior or how we react to negative experiences and kind of weird, dark psychological things. Uh, and I think I've had that from when I was very young. I remember as a child noticing the behavior of grown-ups, uh, not all grown-ups, but certainly a large group of them, uh, and thinking, that's really weird. You're supposed to be a grown-up and you're behaving like a complete weird, dangerous person. And this is really weird. You're supposed to be a teacher who's responsible for me and yet you're being very unfair. And, you know, so I would notice grown-ups' behavior and think it was weird and dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. And... That, I think, made me want to read mysteries where the solutions to the mysteries are always weird quirks of human psyches. So that led to that. And I think it also led to me being interested in grudges. Because if you're, if you're not interested that much in human behavior, you probably aren't going to hold a lot of grudges because you wouldn't necessarily want to remember something that someone did or said from years ago because you wouldn't find it that interesting. I mean, certainly my husband doesn't really hold grudges at all because he can't be bothered remembering any stories. <laughs> you know, I would jokingly but also seriously say to him, if Eckhart Tolle, you know the author of The Power of Now, right. if Eckhart Tolle were ever to meet my husband, he would just love him instantly because my husband is so in the now 
Um, <laughs> I've never met anyone more more firmly anchored in the present moment. He doesn't remember what happened yesterday. He's not interested in what might happen tomorrow. He just does whatever he's doing then. Whereas I remember interesting stories. You know, whether it's fictional or factual, I just remember those stories of this person did that to that person and this was why. And, and one of the things I say in my book is that there are sort of personality types that makes you more or less likely to hold grudges. And one of the key personality types that's more likely to hold grudges is people who see everything in terms of stories, their own life, the world in general. If you love stories and if you live by stories as a writer or a reader, you are going to be more likely to see the story potential in everything that happens in your life. And that, I think, is more likely to predispose you to being someone who holds grudges. And, you know, I think this is another reason why I'm so obsessed with crime fiction and why I love it so much, because in real life, we can never really get further than our speculation about other people's motives. And while, you know, that's fine and we can we all adapt and we all learn to live with that, it's great to have a genre of fiction like crime where at the end you find out exactly why somebody did something. And I think that mm. is what I love about crime fiction. It's like, finally, I get some answers to all my questions about why people are so strange. You know, we have listeners, and there will be many listening right now, who tell us that they don't go into a novel looking to solve it as a reader. They go along and they follow, and I think that that is a perfectly valid and acceptable way to read um, anything. But there are, of course, always those readers, and I would count myself amongst them, I believe Kemper also would, where you go in looking for the mechanics. And I'm not saying that to pull it apart. I'm saying that it's it's active. And I think that that is a satisfaction often in, in puzzle mysteries, obviously more than like a psychological thriller. Yeah, there's various levels to that. So I absolutely love the mystery element. The mystery and solution package is what I love about crime fiction. If a crime novel is not mystery and solution driven, I am unlikely to enjoy it. So whether it's a psychological thriller where you're wondering and wondering and wondering and then you get the answer or a traditional detective novel where you get clues, clues, clues and then you get the answer. I don't mind which of those it is but it has to be puzzle and mystery driven in order for me to love it. But I don't necessarily try in an active way to solve the puzzle before the detective or before I get to the end. What I normally do is just read in a very alert and conscious way, noticing as much as I can, and then sometimes I will think of the solution before it arrives, sometimes I won't. So I think I'm kind of halfway between actively trying to solve the puzzle and not trying at all. Because in a way, one of the great comforts of reading, say, a Poirot or Miss Marple novel is that you know that you can kind of be alert, but in a relaxed way. Because if you don't pick up everything, they will. So right, they, of course. You know, you want, right. you want them to be doing most of the work, but it's still satisfying to, you know, follow it and just see if you notice anything. So I think that's the spirit in which I read crime fiction. I was just thinking about Hannah French's In the Woods because that is a book that does have a mystery, a proper mystery in it, in that it's in the present day and a body is found and it is solved. There's yeah. a 
culprit at the end, but the actual mystery of the book, the actual mystery is what happened in the woods in the 1980s. And we don't find out. There's no solution. There's no answer. We're left at the end of the book with absolutely no more idea of what happened than we did on page one. And I know that that has frustrated historically a lot of readers. And so I'm wondering where you come down on something like that. Well, I think it's interesting. I don't think I don't think you can sort of say something like that because my view about anything that's left ambiguous or unsolved at the end of a crime novel will differ from book to book. I love In the Woods. I mean, I just absolutely adore that book. And I actually adore all of Tana French's books. She is probably my favorite living crime writer. The one thing I would disagree with uh, in what you said, Catherine, is that I don't see the actual mystery as being what happened in the woods. I read that book as being kind of fairly equally divided between the two. So there is the mystery of what happens in the woods, but there's also the mystery of who committed this particular murder now. And I felt that that ending worked beautifully because the part that was solved satisfied my need for closure and the part that wasn't solved she did it in a way where it felt okay that it wasn't solved and where it felt almost as though to solve that as well would have been too neat and that is actually something I try to do well I don't know whether I try to do it but it's something that I notice happens in a lot of my books and I like the fact that it happens and so I try to keep that feature. I think if you if you give readers absolutely everything neatly tied up, that has a sort of oxygen sucking, airless feel to it, where it's like this is everything. You have every possible answer. There's nothing left to wonder about. So what I like is to solve the main kind of driving mystery, and I think in, in the woods it's clear that that is the murder mystery. Right. But I also like to leave something open for the reader to wonder about. So that's another um, question. So, so your contemporary crime fiction versus the um, new Poirot, do you have a sort of different angle on that, wouldn't you say? I mean, just by necessity of having to follow in the Christie style, even if it's your own. I mean, do you feel a difference in, for example, levels of ambiguity in writing one of your contemporary crime novels versus writing a new Poirot? Well, I think it's interesting because, firstly, I mean, yes, obviously my Poirot novels are different from my contemporary thrillers, but those differences are mainly actually on the surface. So, in a contemporary thriller that I write, there's going to be, you know, the internet and people are going to use colloquial language from now. Whereas in a prior novel, it's going to feel more like it's set in 1930 because it is. But the differences, I think, are quite superficial because what I realized when I was asked to write prior novels is that I was already writing a kind of model of storytelling that I'd inherited from Agatha Christie because I, you know, she'd been my favorite crime writer since I was 12. So I was already doing Christie-ish things in terms of my storytelling blueprint and model and tendencies. And it was just like being invited to come out of the closet, really, when I was was to write a Poirot because I was like, I'm already writing Agatha-ish books, but no one has noticed because they're in a contemporary setting. So in terms of levels of ambiguity, I wouldn't actually say that that's 
different in my Poirots from in my non-Poirots because in both, I always solve the central mystery. You always know who murdered who and why, but there's just something else usually for you to wonder about. So, I mean, I don't know whether you will remember this, but certainly, and this isn't a spoiler, at the end of the monogram murders, my first part absolutely know who killed whom and why, but there is mm-hmm. a discussion in the very last scene between Poirot and Catchpool about whether one of the deaths in the book was a murder or not. So the reader knows exactly why that death came about and who was responsible for it. That's all been revealed already in the denouement mm-hmm. scene. But right. Poirot and Catchpool are nevertheless able to argue about whether it was a murder, a suicide, a self-defense killing, and no conclusion is reached. They disagree at the end of the book. And I've had so many letters and emails from readers saying, well, which do you think it was? You raise this, you raise this issue and then you don't tell us. And I find that really funny because like, I deliberately don't come up with a, a sort of, you know, the book's definitive take on that question because that is the ambiguity at the end that I deliberately wanted to create. And right. so I, when people write that to me, I say, if you're asking, because a lot of people write and say, what am I supposed to think? Am I supposed to think it was this or am I supposed to think it was that? And I will always write back and say, if you're asking me what you're supposed to think, there is no answer. You're supposed to think whatever you think about that question. But if you would like to know what I personally think, then I'm happy to tell you. And often they will then, sometimes they don't write back, but often they'll write back and say, yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. I want to know what you think. Now, that's really interesting as well, because what I think is not necessarily what anyone else is supposed to think, and that's why I didn't put it in the book. Right. That's an interesting point. It's an interesting point, and I actually, I'm fascinated by that and by your read of Christie, because I suspect that a lot of people listening to you say that your contemporary thrillers and your Christie books are both doing the same thing, just not on the surface, in that you're leaving some ambiguity would say, but wait a second, there's zero ambiguity in an Agatha Christie novel when you finish it. And I, I will already precipitate what, what, I, what I believe you would say to that, and then you can let me know what, what you actually think. But what people discount about Christie is that there's often so much more going on in terms of character than she's ever given credit for, that there's intrigue, there's interest, there's uncertainty, around sometimes it's the love lives of these people sometimes it's what exactly happened or what is going on with them and we're not sure how everything is potentially going to end up so yes even though the puzzle mystery has an airtight ending there is actually some ambiguity in Christie if you really are reading them closely and considering what's happening is that what you mean or what would be your response to someone saying well is there really any ambiguity in a classic Christie Uh, Yeah, so I agree completely with everything you've just said. I think, you know, yes, she writes these tight puzzle mysteries where everything is solved, but there is so much more than that. There's so much kind of philosophical, psychological, human nature stuff to wonder and think about. I think she's a really intellectual writer. I mean, I think if you read her books... And, you know, let's say you read them when you already know every detail of the plot. There's 
so much more in there to wonder and speculate about to do with the characters. I think she's a proper serious writer about the human condition and there's lots of kind of moral philosophy that you can analyse when you read her books. So, yes, you get the answer. Here is the murderer. This is why they did it. Off they go to take some, you know, uh, cyanide in another room. Thank you very much. That's all neatly tied up. But... You're often you're often left wondering and speculating about the characters and other little aspects of the book and just little fascinating details that kind of open out whole vistas of human psychology. Uh, so absolutely, I would agree with that. And I think also what I meant when I said I was already writing in a Christie-ish way is that so many of the priorities that her novels clearly have and that I loved about her novels when I first read them as a teenager, I just sort of took those in as my blueprint of what the ideal crime novel should be and do. And so when I wrote my first crime novel, Little Faith, uh, which is about, it's not, it, it, on the surface, it's not a sort of classic detective novel at all. It's about a woman who insists that her baby has been swapped for another baby. Mm-hmm. And no matter how, no matter how many people say, don't be ridiculous, it's clearly your baby. You know, no one believes her, but she just insists that while she was out of the house, somebody has swapped her baby for another baby. Um, it's such so a good hook. That in itself, such, a Chris, such a Christy hook. Well, I, but you see, it's a Christy hook. So, so I, without even knowing it, without being aware or conscious of it at all, I just loved all the kinds of things Christy did. And so when I started writing crime, I tried to do them too. I didn't really try to do them. I just found that that was the kind of story I was drawn to. And so... What are the elements of that? Well, one of them is the massively weird and intriguing plot hook. Lots of murder mysteries, not by Agatha Christie, just start with a dead body and a policeman who has to find out who killed the dead body. So, okay, that's quite mysterious and you do want to know who did it and why. What Agatha Christie does so often and so brilliantly, and I would say this is one of her hallmark brilliances, is that she starts off with a mystery that's so weird that the reader cannot even begin to speculate why that might ever happen. So, great example of that is a murder is announced. Why would anybody ever advertise a murder in the local newspaper? And it's precisely the fact that we can't think of a reason why anyone might ever do that that hooks us in. We have to find out. So, that's one of the things that I would say is an Agatha-ish thing that I was doing, you know, long before I was asked to write Poirot. And there's other things as well, like, you know, the fact that the puzzle-based mystery is celebrated and it's such an essential part and the practical puzzle of who kills who and why is a kind of symbolic stand-in for the deeper puzzle of how do we ever know anything about other human beings. I mean, there's all kinds of elements of Christie. You know, things, things that I would say are core Christie elements, and a lot of them, because I loved them so much when I read her book, I sort of found that that was the kind of book I wanted to write. Well, I mean, I would say that, you know, we covered Sad Cypress, which I had remembered reading as a kid. But when we covered it again, despite the fact that there are a few significant plot holes in it, um, both Kemper and I... I think really loved it to the extent that when you reread it in 2018, it felt almost contemporary and she's been gaslit essentially in it. And, you know, that's 
And that's like an interesting phenomenon that can be relevant in, you know, 1940 and 1939 and be relevant today. And that is a psychological, a psychological ambiguous there. Yeah. And she was writing about human nature and that's why her books don't feel dated at all. I mean, I would say absolutely the same is true of The Hollow. When you read Mm -hmm. The Hollow, I mean, it might be set in whatever year it's set in, and she might have written it ages ago, but all the sort of central things in it still feel so relevant. And I think it's because she has this simple, clear, elegant style. You know, her books are not overly adorned and overstuffed with detail. And so she kind of manages to drill down to archetypal stories and essential emotions and human character traits and that's what makes her book so brilliant it's interesting actually i listened to the sad cypress episode because i obviously i listen to your podcast religiously and sometimes oh, I'm so in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I, I love it i'm completely addicted to it and i sometimes join in from home and i think hang on they can't hear me <laughs> <laughs> my my but, mother my mother likes to say that she'll listen to it out in her studio and she'll sometimes find herself responding because obviously I'm her child and she will sometimes like try to talk back and then remember that it's actually recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, I do that too. But and actually one of the things I thought because I think there's lots of brilliant, brilliant things about Sad Cypress, particularly Eleanor as a character and mm-hmm. the, the the stuff around her sort of personal story, I think, is really, really brilliant. But Sad Cypress is not one of my favorite Poirot novels. And so one of the things I often think to myself when I'm listening to your podcast and you get to the rankings bit, mm-hmm. I always think if I was going to rank them, I would need to have some sort of criterion like overall feeling of that was absolutely ace when I finished reading it. Um, <laughs> well, because no, no, no. Because you know, we talked about this. We did a we did a re-ranking episode. Cumber and I got into a little bit of an argument. You know, normally we're we're pretty simpatico, but um, we got into a little bit of an argument about the concept of what I think I put perhaps erroneously as readability. And what I meant by readability was I really enjoyed reading that. Yeah. I think that's probably different. Readability to me would suggest like easiness of reading. Kind of, yeah. I think for me, the key thing that determines whether I love an Agatha Christie novel and it's one of my absolute favorites or whether I think I'm not so keen on that one, it's not actually about the specific properties and strengths of the book. It's about how much I felt when I was reading it. This is amazing. I'm having a brilliant time. I'm absolutely loving this. So, for example, one of the ones that I really, really love is Murder at the Vicarage, because when I read it, I just loved every set. I mean, it was just such an enjoyable reading experience, one of the most enjoyable reading experiences that I've had with any of Agatha's books. But I don't think that was to do with the precise mystery and solution combination, which I can barely remember, actually, now. And I reread it relatively recently. And, yeah, there's others which have obvious weaknesses, which I absolutely love. And then there are some which are technically more perfect, which I'm not keen on at all. So if I were doing a ranking system, I would definitely have as one of the criteria overall loving reading it experience, you know. 
Well, Mona's yeah. Vicarage, I think, is pretty high right now, and we were talking about that, and it's because we both agreed that we are very, very fond of it. I know I've started using our setting and tone category as including a little bit of that ineffable kind of sense of, did I really enjoy this yeah, or not? Because yeah. I, I guess I'm making the rather weak argument that some of that is at least due to the quote-unquote readability of it or whatever kind of magic she was doing as a writer, which is more of a combination of things that you can't really pull apart, which is which is your point. I mean, I totally agree. It's, it's why the we need to always do that checking in on the rankings thing and just kind of reorder things based on our overall sense. Because, you know, you read a book and when you talk about how you feel about it or you think about your thoughts on it, you're not saying, okay, well, this is what I think about this component. It is more of an overall feel. I, I think that's really true. Yeah, no, I think that's the main thing. And I've actually got a theory which could be totally wrong (laughs) but I've got a theory about what that might at least partly consist of what is it that gives some books that overall feel of oh I just love reading this and I think it coincides with when Agatha loved writing that particular book and when Mm. her full heart and enthusiasm is in it so I think I can detect in all of the ones I love most a sense that Agatha was loving writing that particular book. Yeah. I think also I can detect when Agatha's thinking, you know, well, this is fine, but I'm not massively into it. And also when she's thinking, oh, I'm really hating writing this book. I wish it was over. I think, you know, I'm not sure that would be true of every author, but I certainly think for Agatha, you can tell the ones that her heart is truly in. And I think she's a writer who really successfully communicates to readers that sort of feeling and and emotional state and enthusiasm. I mean, one of the things that I think makes her so popular and best-selling and brilliant is her, her love of storytelling. When you're reading a great Agatha Christie story, you can feel that sort of sense of, isn't this a brilliant story and aren't brilliant stories the best thing ever? Yeah, isn't so much fun? Aren't you having so much fun? Yeah, and and when that enthusiasm is missing at her end, then often it's missing at the reader's end as well. That's my theory. Well, I think that's... To go back to your sad cyclist point about how it's not your favorite Poirot, I mean, we talked about this, is that she was forced to insert Poirot into it. She didn't want it to be a Poirot. Well, and I think I I was going to bring up that too, because I think that's such a a good example, because I think there are some Agatha Christie's in which puzzle mystery master as she is she is known the puzzle mystery is a little bit weaker but if it's a story filled with characters that she was excited to tell and that she was invested in and interested in the novel generally sings and that's sad cypress i mean sad cypress is such a flawed book from a plot standpoint but you can feel the joy and the sort of passion with which she was writing that novel which is why it works and I think it's why I mentioned it briefly when we were doing that episode, but in uh, the Laura Thompson biography, she talks about some Agatha Christie mysteries that actually feel a little bit more like Mary Westmacott. <laughs> and it's such, a, it's such yeah, an odd thing, yeah. but, but I know what she means because Christie wrote those Mary Westmacotts just as an outpouring of the heart. I mean, she obviously wasn't doing them for money. She wasn't putting her real name on them. She was doing them because she felt passionately about telling that specific story about those people and whatever emotions they were feeling. And in some of the more ho-hum 
puzzle mysteries, you can feel that that is not happening. I agree with you 100%. And then in others, even if the plot isn't chugging along as well as it normally does, you can feel that passion and it and it does work. So I, Sad Cypress right now, I think, is the best example we have of one of those novels. I think another one that you had identified, we were chatting a little bit over Twitter about it, was Dumb Witness. I think you would probably make the argument that you could you can feel the yeah, same. I love Dumb Witness. I really yeah. love Dumb Witness, and it's been a while since I reread it, but not that long. I reread it maybe about two years ago, and I found it so massively enjoyable. I just really loved it. So I was really surprised when it didn't fare better in your ranking. But <laughs> yeah, it could be that it's one of these where on paper it's flawed, but it's just a very enjoyable reading experience we we upset a number of people with dumb witness it turns out you're not you're not alone Desi. <laughs> but i know so you know i never get upset if i if i disagree with your ranking i don't i don't mind at all i just think it's really interesting when people have all these different views i mean one of the things i love about the podcast is the way the two of you will sometimes disagree and i find that really interesting because then i always think oh okay now we've got Three points of view. We've got Catherine's point of view, Kemper's point of view, and I've got a different point of view as well. Um, <laughs> and yeah. I also just want to, to stick up for another one that I, I know you're not very keen on, Catherine, which is three-act tragedy. I absolutely I love three-act tragedy. Might oh, even music be in to my ears, Sophie. <laughs> yeah. let, me, let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. So Please firstly, do. Please do. I found the experience of reading it really massively enjoyable. So... If we're going to introduce the criterion of the wow factor of readability, then it was one of the ones I enjoyed most. But I also think that the first murder and the third murder in it are so conceptually brilliant and interesting and innovative that I think that puts it up there with Roger Ackroyd and Orient Express as being in that sort of top tier of books where she really showed that the crime novel can do more than we might have thought it could do. So the reasons behind murder number one and murder number three in three-act tragedy are just such genius sort of conceptual ideas. That really raises it up for me. I yeah. mean, my I my problems with it are well known, but I will say, this is not such a spoiler, but the idea of a... Um, Test drive murder is pretty great. Yeah, it's so, amazing. Like, it's so brilliant. Sophie, I'm curious. It sounds like before you started this endeavor of writing new Poirot novels, you had read every single Agatha Christie novel or close to it. Oh, yeah, more than once. I'd probably read <laughs> all of them twice and about half of them three or four times. So what did you do specifically in preparation for writing the first one? That's what I'm so fascinated by. Did you reread the Poirots? I started to reread the Poirots because I'd obviously read them all already quite a few times, but never from the point of view of someone who was about to write one. Uh, and that makes <laughs> it all very different. You read in a much more analytical way. So, yeah, I, I reread. I would say before I wrote the monogram murders, I reread maybe 10 of the Poirots. And then mm -hmm. before writing Closed Casket, I reread another 10. And then before writing Mystery of Three Quarters, I, I reread the ones I hadn't yet already reread. Uh, and now 
as I'm about to start thinking about starting to write my fourth Pyro novel, it's now been sufficiently long since I did my original rereading that I can start from the <laughs> beginning again. That's the great thing about Christy. She she solves the problem of what do I do when I get to the end because it, there are so many of them. Yeah, By the time yeah. you get to the end, you can just start exactly. over. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, exactly. And, and I also think it's a sign of what a brilliant writer she is that you know, you can start reading one of her books for the fifth time and it still feels vibrant and interesting and exciting and new. Even if you know yeah. who did it and why, even if you remember that, which you generally will. Now, there's not many writers that that applies to. There's not many writers no, I, whose books are just as enjoyable to read, even when you've read them three or four times. I totally agree. And I think that goes to that sense of there being other elements of the story that exist outside of the puzzle mystery and that are left to explore and, and left open at the end. And I just have to say, because I've been thinking about it in my head since we made that point many minutes ago, but I think one of the elements that is so often left hanging in the air for readers to ponder is justice, right? It is this whole idea. We say that a, that a murder mystery, and especially a classic Christie-ish murder mystery, wraps everything up and the culprit is caught and order is restored. But that's not really true. And I think so many of the good Christies are obsessed with this idea of, call it whatever you want, moral justice or extra legal justice. But this notion that, was this really okay? Did the murderer get yeah. his or her comeuppance? Yeah. Should they have gotten their comeuppance? And some of the strongest Christies really grapple centrally with that issue, murder on the Orient Express, and then there were none, ordeal by innocence. And that really fascinated yeah, five me. Five little well, pigs. Five little pigs. So I, I think that yeah, is also that things, is yeah. left sort of hanging there for readers to ponder. And on rereads also, when you can really start focusing in on that, it's, uh, you know, she deals with that question in such fascinating ways. Well, and I think that Sophie, you mentioned the idea of wrapping something up by having the murderer go take cyanide in another room. And I mean, that raises its own totally separate question, totally speaks temper to the idea of extralegal justice. And mm -hmm. can you focus on that? Is it actually okay that Poirot just lets somebody go OD in another room rather than go through the... Carol of house that's what we're talking yeah. about. <laughs> Murder on the Orient Express is really interesting from that point of view. And I think it's interesting in a way that I've never heard anyone talk about. I mean, it's obviously interesting from the point of view of, is this justice or is it in fact yet another injustice? So that, that's a sort of central justice question in Murder on the Orient Express. But there's, there's another that I think is, if anything, as interesting as that, which is Poirot at the end is happy to leave it up to some random guy to decide what ought to happen. And that doesn't happen in any other Poirot novel. Normally Poirot says, these are the facts, this is the murderer, justice is now done. In Murder on the Orient Express, this crucial question of whether legal justice should be done or whether there is a higher law of justice that must be obeyed first, such a crucial question, Poirot leaves it in the hands of a random guy on a train. <laughs> you know, he says, what do you think? I'll leave it up to you, random buffet car assistant. <laughs> it's, not, it's not actually a random buffet car assistant. I find that really interesting because Poirot is at the same time saying, you know, I, the great Hercule Poirot, think that there 
are more important justice considerations than what's strictly legal. But he's also saying, but if you, a random guy on a train, disagree, let's do it your way. So it's almost like he's trying to play God, but also being more humble than he's ever been at the denouement of any of his other adventures. He does a similar thing in Five Little Pigs to the extent that, I mean, without spoiling who the murderer is, he says that he might consider taking it to Scotland Yard, but that there's not really any evidence and that he'll just maybe see how things go. And, I mean, it's clear that the punishment in Five Little Pigs is a moral one and that it's been done. It's still him making the decision. It's yes, still it him yeah. saying... I'll see. I mean, whereas Murder on the Orient Express, it almost feels like he's allowing what happens, you know, what ultimately happens at the end legally, he's allowing that to turn on something as random as a head or tail flip of a coin. Because there's nothing to suggest that the random guy on the train that he assigns this responsibility to for making this huge decision is someone who he regards as particularly wise and amazing. He's just like the guy who happens to be sitting next to him. I think the relevance of him delegating that decision to that bloke has never been fully focused on or discussed. Well, I think that there's an argument to be made, and we certainly felt it re-reading Murder on the Orient Express, which, you know, we've all probably read multiple times. Yeah. Despite the brilliance of the plot, it, as a Poirot, you don't get a lot of flushed out Poirot in it. Some of his motivations yeah. in it seem a little bit inexplicable, perhaps because there's not an interlocutor for him. I don't know. Um, but you do end up a little bit with him doing a more of a procedural from his standpoint than you do in other books. I think Christie plays with the idea of discomfort over who is the ultimate arbiter in justice, right? I mean, we do all live in a society and she generally upholds the notion that we should be law-abiding and just go by what is legal and what's not. And that's always the answer in, in Miss Marple. I mean, Miss Marple is a hardline sort of conservative upholder of everything, including the death penalty. I mean, she, you know, she several times comes out very hard for capital punishment and looks forward to murderers yeah. being hanged. But in Poirot, there is often this ambiguity. And I think that it is often overlooked because it's 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 messy and it's inconvenient and it's not what the popular kind of conception of Poirot is. And I think in Murder on the Orient Express, it's particularly uncomfortable and uncertain, both because it involves everyone, so it's a particularly morally messy issue, but it also involves the murder of a child. And I think that yeah. perhaps him handing it over to someone else shows some of that discomfort of him as a character and even Christie as an author. I don't know, but I agree with you. It is a fascinating question. I don't think anyone has dealt with it sufficiently. And it is specific to that book, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I wonder whether it's almost like in terms of just the symbolism, there's a kind of way in which by Poirot giving this decision to someone else, which is much more collegiate and cooperative than his usual mystery-solving method where he works it out and he is the ultimate authority. But by being willing to share responsibility and even delegate responsibility to this other man, that feels like a, a sort of echo of everybody getting together to commit the murder in the first place. 
So it's a murder where lots of people join in, and it's a solution where Poirot invites someone else to join in. So that mm. feels like, a, in terms of the imagery and the symbolism, that feels like a link to me. Mm, I, I like that. I, I have one other very specific question that I'm dying to ask you, which is okay. when this whole project of continuing Christie came about, were you given a choice between continuing Poirot or Miss Marple, or was the idea always we want to do a new Poirot novel and let's leave Miss Marple to later? So when we had our initial meeting, uh, the Christie family and I, I think what happened was that Matthew Pritchard, Agatha's grandson, who at the time was chairman of Agatha Christie Limited, Matthew asked me if we were to ask you to write an Agatha Christie continuation novel of some kind, would you have any preference as to what kind you might do? Would you like to write about Poirot or Miss Marple or one of the other characters? And I said, well, as a reader, I've always loved Poirot and Miss Marple equally. Those were the books that I liked by far best. You know, those were my top-notch Christie's, and I couldn't really choose between them. Uh, In terms of actually writing one, I had an idea that I thought would work brilliantly for a Christie continuation novel, and it was an idea I'd had for several years, actually, And I'd kept trying to use it in one of my contemporary thrillers, and it just wouldn't work. And I was always very puzzled by this. I kept thinking, I know I love this idea. I know it's a great idea. Why won't it go in to any book that I'm writing? And then when the possibility of writing a Christie continuation novel came up, I suddenly thought, aha, that idea would be perfect. And I realized that the reason that I hadn't been able to lever it into any of my other crime novels up until that point is that it wasn't a contemporary idea. It just wasn't an idea that would fit well in contemporary psychological crime fiction of the sort that I was writing. But when I thought of doing it as a a golden age detective novel, then it seemed to really take off. So I'd already worked all that out, and I thought, right, this is the idea that if they do ask me to write any sort of Christie continuation, this is what I want to do. And that particular idea just felt more Poirot-ish than Miss Marple. So when Matthew said, have you got a preference, I explained that. Uh, I said, no, it it feels more Poirot-ish than Miss Marple-ish. And he then said, well, in an ideal world, Poirot would be the character that we'd most like to see resurrected. So it was just a coincidence. They had a sort of preference in that direction, and I had an idea that I felt would work better for Poirot. And that was the idea that became the monogram murders. And the reason I thought it would be better for Poirot is that the solution and the denouement scene involved a lot of clever showing off. I knew there would be lots of, you know, it looked as if this was the case, but no, that was the case. And a lot of grandstanding and ideally a big audience to be impressed by this clever solution. And, And that all just felt much more Poirot than Marple to me. Absolutely. Are you so? Is there a possibility of ever doing a Miss Marple in the future? Well, I've always said. I mean, when when it was announced that I was going to be writing a new Poirot novel, lots of people asked me almost immediately, "Would I ever consider doing a Marple?" And I've always said, I, I and I still feel that I just shouldn't ever write Miss Marple because taking on Poirot felt like a really big deal, and it still feels like a big deal and a big responsibility to be writing new Poirot novels and I just sort of instinctively it's not even a logical thing I just really strongly feel that I shouldn't ever write Miss Marple 
and that if the family would like new Miss Marple novels to be written, then that's an opportunity for, for somebody else who loves Agatha Christie to step in and, and do a Marple. I think that would be great, but I, I definitely feel it shouldn't be me. I don't think Poirot would like it, apart from that. <laughs> he, he, uh. he wants his author all to himself. Of yeah, I think, he he, I think he probably does. <laughs> I am curious where you come down on the more thrillerish Christie, which both includes Tommy and Tuppence and then some of her more early thriller kinds of novels. You know, we love all Christie. I think it's pretty fair to say that both Catherine and I prefer the more straight ahead kind of puzzle mystery Christie and the and slightly more mature Christie going into the 30s and beyond. But there are these fun, madcap, adventurous well, 20s thrillers. Like and I, uh, yeah. Funky young girl element. I think we have a faction for young There are things to appreciate about them. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I would say, I mean, I love all Christie, but I massively, massively prefer the mystery puzzle ones. If there's an element of spying, adventure, and jewel fest, then I'm less keen. And I massively prefer Poirot and Miss Marple. In fact, Poirot and Miss Marple and the best of the standalones, so Crooked House and um, Endless Night and books like that, those are my top favourites. And then among the more sort of adventure spy thriller ones. I mean, there are ones I like, but there aren't any of my absolute favorites in that category. Um, Tommy and Tuppence, I'm very, very keen on By the Pricking of My Thumbs. Yeah, mm-hmm. I really love that one. Uh, but that's the only one that isn't a Poirot or Marple mystery or a standalone mystery puzzle one that I would put in my top favorite category. And The Hollow is probably your favorite of all of them? Currently, so I always change. I mean, it's it's really hard to have a sort of stable favourite uh, when I reread them as often as I do. But currently, The Hollow is my favourite. I think that is an absolutely brilliant novel. It's just on every level, the characterisation, the relationships between the characters, it feels so real and vivid and it's just brilliantly written and the mystery puzzle I think works brilliantly so that's my current favorite but then I've got other regular favorites that rotate so I adore Murder on the Orient Express I adore Evil Under the Sun I think that is fantastic that's definitely top three I absolutely love After the Funeral and weirdly I absolutely love Appointment with Death I don't think it's one of the best at all but it's one that I particularly love because that portrait of purely psychological coercive control is so brilliantly done. So well done. Yeah. She gives me the willies every time I reflect on it, even when we were redoing our rankings and we were thinking about her. You can feel the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Yeah, no, <laughs> brilliant. Uh, and, and I would say three-act tragedy would be one of my favorites. What's yeah. your favorite Marple? Oh, um, okay. Miss Marple, there's loads that I just love. So I love Murder at the Vicarage. I love A Murder is a Noun. And I love mm-hmm. Sleeping Murder. And I love The Body in the Library. So those four are my top mm. four Marples. And then the standalones are just amazing. I mean, Towards Zero is so brilliant. She's just, like, almost implausibly brilliant. When you think about how many great books she wrote. It's really quite weird. 
<laughs> it's weird. It's weird. It's like she was a supercomputer or something. Like she had like the yeah. brain of a supercomputer that just has much more ability and bandwidth than a normal human. It is weird. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, in the best absolutely. Of and then there are some, you know, there are some that I can see are really good but I don't feel much affection for and I don't love reading them and I feel guilty. I'll tell you the two I feel guilty about not loving more. Cards on the Table, it's objectively, it's doing everything right, it's a great book, but I just don't enjoy it that much, I'm not sure why. And Death in the Clouds, I don't massively enjoy either. And then there's other ones that I can see are deeply flawed that I really love. I really love Lord Edgware Dies. I can see what's wrong with it, but I just love it. I feel that in some ways it's like everything Christie-ish about Christie just multiplied to the max. And I love it for that reason. And I also love the murderer character. That character of the murderer I just think is so well done. Uh, So I, I think that's one of Christie's most vivid murderers. So I love that book for that reason. And I love Murder in Mesopotamia, even though I completely agree with your analysis that it's one of the few Christies where the solution, you know, I, I'm I'm willing to believe in anything that is scientifically possible. So, you know, when people say, and then there were no um, Murder on the Orange Express, oh, come on, it's so implausible, it would never happen. I would always defend that. I would always say, actually, there's absolutely no reason why that couldn't happen scientifically. And human beings are very weird, and therefore that could absolutely happen. With Murder in Mesopotamia, when I got to the end, it was probably the only Christie where I thought, oh, come on. I wanted to ask you another question when you were talking about Tommy and Tuppence. Because you mentioned by picking my thumbs, they're old in by the picking of my thumbs. And they're the only Christie characters who age. Yeah. Everybody else is like in a permanent state. The aging slows down, doesn't it? I think the fictional detective years are the opposite of dog years. <laughs> so dogs <laughs> age more quickly. Detectives in novels age much less quickly. I was curious um, what you thought about the idea that Tommy and Tuppence are the only characters that Christie wrote who aged. It's interesting because Poirot and Miss Marple are almost sort of like superhero characters, aren't they? They're just there on the scene when needed, as if by magic, when there's a murder to be solved. So it feels right that they don't sort of age in that in that obvious way. But maybe she saw Tommy and Tuppence as having more in common with the ordinary people that they are in books with. So they are just people like the other people in those books that they're in. Whereas Poirot and Miss Marple are definitely not just people like everyone else. They are crime-solving superheroes with this kind of amazing, almost magical mystique about them. And so it feels right that they should age at a different rate. interview with Sophie Hannah who we again were so thrilled to be able to chat with and I think as I had said to Sophie as we were wrapping up you know we could have easily gone on for another hour talking about the things that the three of us were all very much interested in and we will hopefully have her back on again relatively soon. 
I think to say we could have gone for another hour is putting it mildly. I probably could have gone for another four hours. As listeners know, we, the two of us, certainly have no problem gabbing away about all things Christie, but adding Sophie to the mix was just uh, almost too much of a delight. But I hope that uh, listeners enjoyed it as much as we did having the conversation. I also like that where we ended that conversation, Sophie's dogs made a guest appearance because if you listen to the recording of Agatha Christie doing some dictation that comes with her autobiography as a downloadable extra, you can hear her dog barking as well. So it feels appropriate that we were able to get a bit of a canine cameo in there at the end. We should also note that Sophie's podcast is live. She has a couple of episodes under her belt at this point, and that is called How to Hold a Grudge, a companion podcast to her new book, which we discussed earlier in the episode. Although her book is not required reading for the podcast, listeners will be able to enjoy what she has to say and uh, appreciate her interesting and quite revolutionary views on grudges and grudge holding by tuning in. And you can do that on iTunes or Spotify, or I believe anywhere else. It is free to download just like our podcast. So definitely take a listen to that. Join us next time for Triangle at Rhodes. That is a Poirot short story and one that we mentioned in our Evil Under the Sun episode because it has a lot of striking similarities to that novel and was published a couple of years earlier. So we figured it was a good time to cover this mid-30s Poirot story. And of course, it's David Suchet adaptation. Very excited for that one. We'd of course love to hear from you as we always do. So take a moment to email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can also find Sophie herself on Twitter at Hanna S-O-P-A. H-I-E-H-A-N-N-A-H-C-B-1. And you can find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. Our Instagram handle is at All About Agatha. As always, we really appreciate the ratings and reviews. We've gotten a bunch of them recently, and they make us so happy. So if you haven't done that, just take a moment and do it. You will brighten our day and perhaps yours as well. We also wanted to give a shout out to our listener, Jacob, who turns 14 today and is apparently a longtime fan of Agatha Christie, though as one who is significantly older than Jacob, I'm not sure that being 14, you could be a longtime fan. Although I would like to point out, I would like to point out that we bring up all of the time that we started reading Agatha Christie in probably fifth grade. And so I fully believe that Jacob could have made his way through the entire Christie catalog. This is true. This is true. Jacob, we are one with you. We just wanted to wish you a happy birthday and many more happy reads of Christie, whether they be first time reads or second time reads or third or fourth or maybe fifth times. She truly is the gift that keeps on giving. So happy birthday, happy reading and happy birthday. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.